it blows my mind every time. Well, see, and that's I, the awe, right? That's the that's the reason I think most of us got into science is that we feel like we're touching the fire a little bit. You know, it's like I, I, I know something about this world, or I'm almost at the point of knowing something about this world that just makes it that much cooler. Yeah. And that's there's no feeling in the world like that. Hello, EBC crew. Our guest of honor is Justin Sipla, our inspiring neuroanatomy professor. He has his PhD in anatomical sciences from Stony Brook University. He's a clinical instructor of anatomy and cell biology, and also an associate professor of neurology. In this episode, we talk with Justin about his neuroanatomy course and follow up with him on the topic of free will. Disclaimer, we tried something new this time. We chop it up at a local plant bar. Write in and let us know how you like it. We might have to do it again. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. Let's do it. We have you on the podcast. It's very exciting for us. It's exciting for me because I I think I can speak for all of us when I say that we like loved your class. I think your class made us best friends because we would study together and draw on the board and be confused and figure it out and have really interesting conversations about the material that just led us down wormholes of like really fun wormholes that made us excited about science. And so it was just like such a joy. And yeah, so like it means a lot, I think, to have you on here. Season two is like the topic is the people that inspire us. And so like it's nice to have you on. Oh, I, think, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah that's like, really nice to hear. I mean, as an educator, there's nothing that's going to make me happier than what you just said. So I'm glad <laughs> it brought you guys together. And, and I'm glad it, I'm especially glad that you were throwing ideas on a board and seeing what stuck and, and doing active learning instead of just rereading notes and hoping you remember things. Um. Yeah. That was like, like we we talked about it too and like feel free to chime in, but like the way that you set up the course and I know you've been teaching it for such a long time and so now it's at this really nice like perfected stage. It's never perfect. Yeah, nothing's ever perfect. Always room for improvement. Talk about that. It's entirely different this year than last year. <laughs> oh, really? really? Not entirely. There's changes. I've been helping some of the students in your class. Oh, really? Yeah. There you go. Uh-huh. Now, don't don't look at their grades because I don't know what they've been getting on the exam. But... <laughs> oh, we couldn't talk about it anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so we've been going through cranial nerves and blood flow and uh-huh. all the stuff. I mean, not not to get too institutional about it, but I think one of the strengths of that class at this point, you were mentioning how it's a, a well-running machine or it's been perfected, but one of the things that has been perfected is the fact that the neuroscience program has like history with it, you know, that the, the people that have come through the class get the next group pumped about taking it and, and try to get them excited about, you know, what it's going to do for them and their own, just their thinking in general, but then also what it can do for their science. And and th- that didn't start that way, you know, when the class first started, it was it felt like a bunch of grad students who just like felt like they had to be there, but didn't necessarily want to be there. And that's gotten better and better over the years. And so now I've got a lot more capital to work with on the first day mm. and then there's this added benefit of the upper class people know how to help and, how to, and take an active role in helping to teach and now all of a sudden it's a community working towards this and that's amazing yeah that's that's an amazing thing to have at this point i'm very very glad with where we are with functional neuroanatomy and i guess i'll add this after we took neurobiology one in this fall semester as like the first neuroscience course and it just absolutely demoralized, I think, the majority of the cohort. Aww. And so, to, it really was night and day. Like, your material was difficult, 
but it was so well laid out that it got our engines running to really care about neuroscience. Because um, each one of us could like take little bits and pieces that were, that were pertinent to us and go back to the lab and understand how this mechanism works now. That's amazing. And so that's what I think I that's, hear. that's, you know, it's applicable and that's what makes, makes that class so fun. Yeah, it's like you, you try to connect with each learner somehow where they are. And that's the thing that's so cool about the PhD cohort is that they're all doing different stuff. So yeah. They're coming at it from so many different angles. The PTs in general are working toward the same goal, right? A similar enough goal that they have to go through the same kind of hoops together, but it's not that way with the PhD cohort. Everybody's got their own path and their own backstory and their own, I mean, everybody's got their own backstory, but this group is like gonna express that in their work differently. Yeah. And it, when they're a student. And so I, it's it's really cool to see how uh, the grad students year in, year out use this. I get a lot of comments from graduates or people who've gone on to do their postdocs or whatever, and they go right back and say things like, I, I, when I took this class, it was really tough, or I maybe didn't even like it, but, you know, oh my God, I use it all the time, and it's helped me understand the terrain of my own work in a way that I wouldn't have appreciated, how it intersects other things, and, you know, a lot of people, a lot of times, bench scientists get so focused on the thing they do, uh, and, and they, they understand everything about the literature pertaining to that very constrained set of rules. But if you can link it to other systems and link it to other, you know, sort of uh, ideas that are out there, then all of a sudden, you know, the impact of that work just multiplies and multiplies. I feel like we're getting, I think that's ultimately why Dan wanted you guys to take the class, because it did that for him when he took neuroanatomy right. as a student a long time ago. And so he's been insistent on his students doing the same thing ever since, and we try to deliver that. And I think it works pretty well when it does in a way. There's also just like something about the lab component that's like, I remember taking the lab practical like towards the end of the course and just feeling so grateful to like be in that room taking that exam because just like the hours and hours and hours of preparation that goes into like pinning each structure and like coming up with those questions and You're probably the only human like being that's ever thanked me for putting together a practical exam, but I really appreciate it. <laughs> we lost our butts getting that ready. Yeah. It's really hard. It's you just, said like five in the morning or something? I seven. I go at seven. It's still so early, very early. Like in that room and like, you know, I'm stressed about the exam and stuff, but I was like, what a privilege to be walking around and like having like neuroanatomists have pinned like exactly where this is and like all this stuff and so that I can go and see and learn and like make sure that I know where it is and just like build up my own skills that way. Because like the lab in itself, like I we would go into the lab on weekends and stuff and like figure out, like redo the labs and like work through it again. And that was really amazing, except for when we found the cadaver room. That's always like my one <laughs> anecdote is I accidentally stumbled upon the cadaver room. <laughs> And I did not know that that was back there. We were looking that for would have been a shock if you wandered into that room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shock. yeah. I opened the door and I immediately closed it and was like, hey, you guys want to come with me to this room? Like, just I just want to make sure we got to find the textbook. <laughs> I don't want to go alone. So help me out. Yeah, that would be something. Yeah. The textbook wasn't in there? No, it, it was. It, it was. was. It ended up being in there. <laughs> but... Well, thanks for saying that. That's nice to hear. I mean, the lab is certainly, I consider to be one of the most important components of that class. And one of the things most people don't get a chance to ever do in their life. 
uh, much less in a structured way. So it's just, I mean, I think it's rare enough to see a, a human brain ever. It's another thing entirely to get to dissect them and really learn the structural neuroanatomy within your hand. And uh, so when it's appreciated, it's really nice to hear. <laughs> I remember like that summer I'd gone to this like cognitive neuroscience thing at UCSB and there was a component, a lab component, and people were so excited because it was like the first time most of those students had seen and gotten to interact with the brain. And then I was there and I was like, like, I know what this is, I know what that is, like, that's so cool. And people thought that I was so much older than I was because I had, like, known all this stuff about the neuroanatomy. But it was also just, yeah, it was like, it made me appreciate that experience even more because it's not common even within neuroscience programs to get that kind of... Yeah, you can thank, you can thank Dan Trinnell for that. He wanted his students to have that experience. And now it's become so institutionalized that it's just part of the core teaching. But... I think that was a great choice he made, and uh, it's a privilege for me to get to teach this cohort. I, it's one of my favorite things I get to do. So, um, yeah, every year we just kind of keep trying to do better. Awesome. You said that was UCSB, yeah, or SD, SB, Santa Barbara. Yeah, so that's my. I'm, I'm from Southern California, and, and I would have been worthless at a conference like that because I, I would too many of the things I'd want to do. <laughs> It was like we were there for two weeks. It was oh like my goodness, Calvary Cognitive Neuros, like brain camp is what people call it. But what time of year was it? It was in the summer. Oh my! And it was the most magnificent. Like now, if I stay in academia, like that's the goal. I think now is to work at UCSB because like you can just go surfing between classes. <laughs> I have, I have. He's not there anymore. I have a colleague though who's in Georgia now, but he used to be a professor there. And he was visiting here for something, and we were at a meal, and, and I was I kind of basically told him, like, come up with some excuse for me to come out there and give a talk, like a <laughs> grand round or something. I don't care what I figured out. Yeah. And we never did it. Now he's somewhere else. But, yeah, that's a fun place. It was so, so lovely. Where in California are you from? From the Los Angeles area. So the county next to Los Angeles County is Ventura County. Yeah. And I'm from there. I'm, I grew up, I was born in Thousand Oaks Hospital okay. and grew up in the little suburb of Thousand Oaks called Newberry Park. Yeah. And so I'm from Newberry Park, California, right on the other side of the Camarillo grade. Yeah. I, I was asking, I'm from San Luis Obispo. No way. Yeah. So I was like, I think oh, you probably Thousand told Oaks, me that yeah. at one point. Yeah. Love it up there. Yeah. So in fact, I just made the trip from San Luis Obispo down to Santa Barbara and, and uh, Los Angeles area just this last August. My wife and I were driving around coastal California. Oh, so pretty. Yeah. I love it. That's awesome. So I think in popular fashion, what we do on our podcast is like we introduce ourselves, like name, um, and then we kind of talk about what we're educated in, like a little brief background, and then what you're confused about for the week. It can be any confusion. It doesn't have to pertain to science. And then why you chose your drink that you're drinking right now. Oh my goodness. Okay. So we can go around and, and do that and we'll leave you at the end a sure. proper feature <laughs> so you can elaborate a little bit more on this all right well topics. then let's start with you sure i'm yasin um pronouns he him educated in engineering uh, i did bioengineering in undergrad and that was kind of my link to getting my training in neuroscience now um and today's confusion is plants and that is very fitting because we are at the greenhouse which is a plant-based bar, I guess. How how do you want to describe this? I don't know. A bar that has a lot of. Got a fake macaw hanging up there. That's what I noticed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And so it's, uh, I know as a kid, I, I heard that plants have emotions. Um, and I always thought that was really interesting. And now that I'm in neuroscience, it's kind of it. I wonder if you can dissect that. Is it like something more. to be a plant? Exactly. Like, do plants have, like, intrinsic feelings and subjectivities and stuff? So, yeah, I, I looked at a plant and I thought about myself now. I'm like, that's what I'm confused about today. I'm going back to my childhood and just wondering about the natural world. So, I don't know. It'd be cool to study. Maybe in, a, in the next life. Or I'll look into it. Maybe there's some articles. So, that's my confusion today. And I'm drinking uh, garden soda, rose-flavored. Because I think the rose flavoring is just, I don't know, it kind of gets you, gets you going. <laughs> rose flavor gives you a kick. It really does. Mellows you out, but gives you a little bit of a boost of excitement. Best of both worlds. <laughs> All right, well, my name is Val. Uh, he, him pronouns, educated in psychology, health, and mathematics. Uh, currently getting my neuroscience education. And I am confused about the structure of exams because we had an exam yesterday and for some reason the two hardest questions were at the very end yeah and i i don't know how everybody else approached the exam but like you know you're always sort of taught like uh go through go through see what you know answer what you know come back to the ones that are too difficult okay great well even if those last two were the ones that i came back to there's only an hour to answer 30 questions and they were extremely difficult questions uh so i got timed out on those ones and i just am shocked at the structure of that um exam anyway i digress on that front <laughs> we don't need to get into that i'm just frustrated uh I'm drinking, i share that sentiment yeah I'm, i bet I, we were all we all took that exam um and i'm drinking a watermelon habanero shrub which is that sounds really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's like their specific because it's the greenhouse. Um, maybe a shrub is their specific type of drink. Um, but it does have a really nice sweet and spice to it. Um, plus there's tequila in it, which kind of gives it an extra kick. Can't be as, as uh, kick worthy as that rose. Uh, no, rose is undefeated. Rose is undefeated, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I'm Avery, pronouns they, them. I am educated in neuroscience for my undergrad and then continuing neuroscience in grad school, uh, studying social cognition. And I am confused about crispy protein bars. Uh, <laughs> I've never really had one before, but they had them at Costco, so I got them. And they're pretty good. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know how they get the protein to not taste so proteiny when there's just like Rice Krispies in there. Uh, and then I'm drinking. It's like, uh, it's a beer. It's Fire Trucker Modern Art. I picked it solely for the name because I like name aesthetics. Yeah, name aesthetics. That's how I choose my beer. It's like picking a wine based on the label. I definitely do that. Like, absolutely. <laughs> Why do we do that, Justin? Maybe we'll save it. <laughs> There's a lot of good reasons for that, actually. All right, so hi, I'm Justin. Um, my pronouns are he, him. I am educated in a lot of weird things. I started as an anthropologist. So my undergraduate work was at UCLA in anthropology, and I wanted to be 
a paleoanthropologist out of grad school. I was privileged to do that. I got to go to Kenya and dig up fossils and do that kind of stuff. Uh, I got to grad school at Stony Brook University in New York, which was the number one program that I wanted to get into. So I scratched everything else off the list after that point once I got the letter for that. Um, I went there to continue doing that, but then at a meeting before I started grad school, I met a guy who did inner ear evolution and hominids, uh, a, a guy named Fred Spoor in London at the time, University College London, and he trained me up on how to CT scan uh, fossils and or just bones in general and, and model the inner ears, so I started working on that. I was doing a lot of biomechanical work as a grad student, and then one thing led to another, and I ended up doing the same work with dinosaurs with a different advisor just because I had a fun conversation over a meal one day. So I ended up paleo neurobiologist who studied the evolution of dinosaur brains. That's and, so cool. And I still do that. I work on that. Uh, my, my most recent papers are in, in that science. Um, and so then I got the PhD at Stony Brook University and I got my first professorship at the University of Texas, El Paso. I was there for four years. I was teaching physical therapy students and uh, occupational therapy students about human anatomy and human neuroscience. One of my favorite stories about that is I had never taken a neuroscience class in my career. I still haven't. And, um, <laughs> I, but I was tasked with How? teaching them neuroscience. So I, I learned it. <laughs> I learned it sufficiently to teach it. I did it the same semester I was writing my dissertation. It was the worst six months of my life. Whoa. Oh my God. <laughs> Whoa. I can't even imagine. It was did you go to sleep? Not much. I did not sleep very well. I had serious anxiety throughout a period of time. I got through it. Um, and I mean, I, I understood the brain because I had to learn it to do my work, right? So right. I wasn't a total babe in the woods, but I didn't understand any kind of clinical neuroscience. Mm -hmm. I had no clue what the PTs needed. So, you know, you talk to people, you find out what they need, and you end up learning the material. But on the strength of that, I, I got the job here at Iowa. And so here I am. Yeah, so I've been here since 2010. And today I'm confused about a couple things. Um, before I got here, I was mostly confused about how you get access onto the Argonne High Capacity Cluster to do fancy data analytics. Uh, we did solve that problem by the end of the day. Hey, there you go. Yeah, which is nice. So I, we got a, a grad student who's helping me out uh, doing some really interesting work with the College of Medicine. So I'm excited about that. Since I got here, I'm confused about protein donuts and, what, <laughs> and how that's a thing. So, <laughs> someone had to say it. That's a <laughs> very good thing to be confused about. <laughs> I actually find it weird that I'm not also confused about the protein donut because I'm the one that ate it. <laughs> uh, in terms of a drink, I picked something called a Ripley. It's probably also name aesthetics. My second all-time favorite movie is the original Alien film. 1979, the lead character's name is Ripley. I'm sure that had some to do it. But also, it's the only cocktail on the menu with whiskey in it. And so that's really what drove the decision. It also has, I can barely read without glasses, but hibiscus, simple syrup, and blood orange bitters. It's delicious. Oh, sounds good. What flavor comes through the most, would you say? Um, it's it's a blend. blend. Yeah, the bitters, bitters are all about just the right amount, and I feel like they've got that dialed in. So we had to meet at this bar because in lecture, at the, towards the end of the course, we had a lecture about free will, or we, we touched on free will, 
And to the day might come, I give a whole lecture on free will, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know that's anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, it was not the whole Or that lecture. I'm qualified. <laughs> Is anyone really? <laughs> but Justin did his best to talk about free will. And, and um, he, at the end, said, if you want to think, if you want to talk to me about free will, because sometimes people want to talk about it, then answer these questions or think about these questions and then we can grab a beer and chat. And so here we are. Here we are. <laughs> we made it. We made it. Pre- prepared properly or not. Yeah. It's a tough, tough Get, conversation to have. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. All right. It might not lead to anything, but it'll be fun. Right? <laughs> it most definitely yeah. will be. It'll be a good time. <laughs> By no means will we only talk about free will, but that is what got us all It'll be together. a fairly short conversation. Yeah. Because <laughs> I guess I'll start that, like, my hot take on this is that I don't necessarily think it matters to answer this question. Because Why? when we were all studying this lecture and we got to these questions and we talked about it, we hit a point where it was really hard to define what free will means. And everyone seemed to have a bit of a different definition. And my definition of free will, to me, is... Oh, I don't even... Like, I don't even know. But I, I think that... I forget, like, what I had said. But I think that I had thought that if you put together someone's biology and their environment that they grew up in and their experiences, that if you could somehow replicate their exact biology and their exact environment, which is impossible, that you would make the exact same decisions that they made. It's probably impossible for the same individual in the same environment. To what? It's probably impossible for the same individual in the same environment to come up with the same organization. Because if they had already lived through that, like environment i think if you even just rewind it and play it again like it's I, I, it's hard it for me different. to be, it's hard to be to, for me to believe it would come out identically the same with so many factors influencing which neuron is going to get reinforced for that one and is it where does the level of um, influence break down i don't know how to answer that but i do i, I agree very strongly that our individual trajectories are going to determine how our brain is organized and i feel very strongly that the uh, enculturation of concepts like free will has a lot to do with how we feel about them and everything else for that matter <laughs> right <laughs> um, but um, but I don't think you can I don't think you could grow a, you know an organoid that's going to have the same set of interactions no matter how many times you try it but that's I, true. I mean, how can you control every variable the same? It just—it seems impossible. Exactly, because isn't isn't that entropy? Is like just the random movement of particles? It took like, us less than two minutes to talk about physics. Yeah. <laughs> it's like things. Well, I, you know, I'm trying to find like you know we model every, life is modeled. You know, we try to apply mathematics to everything, and so I'm just like trying to relate that intersection with free will. Sure. And so, yeah, you couldn't do it. You couldn't 
remodel it, even if something you, Avery, know. Avery brought up that I think is important to do before you ever have these kind of conversations is to define what you mean. And I know you had trouble doing that. Yeah, yeah, we tried. <laughs> they have any of you come up with some kind of like, what's what do you mean when you say free will? Like, define that as best you can. So that's the thing. There's so much subjectivity. So to create something that is uniform to you know kind of achieve everyone's subjectivity I think is what makes free will difficult to define but you have to kind of take steps back and take uh, what you'll say in lecture 30,000 foot view of free will and I think it is basically in my eyes the ability to control your outcomes true control of your outcomes. Now we got well. something to work with because you just defined some parameters. Yeah. I think, and so that is a yes or no. That's the hypothesis. So for you, it's about volition, the ability to create motor control. Yes. Okay. Control your emotions, your motor outputs, your sensations. Control of one's emotions. That's a, that's a deep <laughs> issue right there. That's so I think I'm taking the really big. Do you have control over your emotions? <laughs> that's the thing. I don't know if I do. Because if not. you do, I want you to help me out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, I think volition. I mean, yeah, you said it perfectly. That's I think what the definition broadly is. But people, I think, will counter to that. Val, do you have a different sense of it? Um, I don't know if it's too different. Um, but I like to think of it as I don't know on a, on a human level, the ability to choose something for yourself to somehow forward yourself uh, not necessarily to make your life better but a choice that you can make that you can reason with and sort of assess for yourself whether it's good or bad for you so that's getting into a little bit of a more than just not just because I think I think volition is very important in this conversation do you actually have control over your body is, <laughs> is an important question um, but that wherever you stand on that, there's a lot, that's the area you brought up is the area that has the most research, right? So there's plenty of work on where our sense of decision making and where volition occurs and how offset they are. And there's a lot of we can address that. And that kind of goes back to some of the earliest thinking about this in the '80s about you know where does that come from and and, and uh, are there non-conscious systems that are involved in kind of setting the table for the decisions that get made and then who who is in charge of making the decisions you know in quotes air quotes here you know like what we mean by a decision being made anyway but then to the next step which is like if if our if our self our experience of self is is built neurobiologically right if 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 all the different network interactions that contribute to our sense of identity and self is all happening all the time uh, in some way that we may or may not have control over uh, is that able to shape the future outcomes of the organism in some way and you know and I agree with Avery I, I don't know if it matters if we define this at all because you're not going to get four people sitting around a, a table drinking whiskey to agree on what you mean anyway like it's just too nebulously weird um, but there's so many layers, there's so many tiers, therefore, to look at this. Is it like just a motor problem? Is it activating the motor system? And, and what's involved in choosing to do that or not choosing to do that? 
versus you know how one sense of self and, and sort of moral compass and, and, and so on influences future decisions. Many of us believe they do, but how exactly? And, and if those are just neural networks that have been operationalized to solve problems your whole life, is, to what extent are they not still doing that? So that's another issue. Um, it's really it's really interesting to think about all those layers when, when you kind of approach it that way. It's true. And like, I don't know, I always go back to the brain. It's such a prediction machine. It's like you're taking steps and your brain's already calculated what steps you're taking, like 10 feet away. I don't know the exact That's all it's good at. That's what it does. But then there's that, or you don't have any volition because you're not making those computations willingly. Like for volition, like when you were talking, Val, you said you a lot. And it's like, well, who is you? And people define that differently. Mm. Are you a materialist? Do you think that everything we do has like a material? Can we hang on to that for a second? Like, yeah. why does anyone believe in materialism? And I, almost everybody does. Now, you talk to anybody about the world, they're going to tell you it's a physical world. Yeah. But, but on what basis do you assert that? From your experience, from your perceptions of the world. There's more to it than your perceptions of the world because there's very little about our perceptual information that's that's um, going to convince my brain that this is a physical object. I mean, if you get down, you go down that if you go down that pathway, you're you're always going to run into this bottleneck of that hard problem of consciousness. This notion of like, how do I explain all these phenomena because of neurons firing? It just becomes impossible to do. Um, but I think there's this anthropological layer to it, which is we have a shared cultural expectation that the world is physical, and we teach ourselves these things, and it underwrites how we talk about reality. Everything we say about the world around us is in those terms, and our, it's not just English, it's, it's all the language sets do it. So it's not even just a language thing, it's a humans have, for whatever reason, created a, a vocabulary for talking about reality that involves the assumption, a totally implicit assumption, that there's a really real world that has a physical properties. Even though there's nothing about our biology that can actually prove that, right? So it's a, str it's a strange problem, right? You know, I, I, I think these conversations are, are better served by just agreeing there's a physical world and moving on with it, but that's still a hypothesis, right? At best, there's no world you can report to me as a scientist that doesn't involve human perceptual interpretation of data and then you know you get into the physics of all that and all of a sudden it's like well you're observing things and you're changing their nature by observing them so now you just get into this oh, yeah, impossible yeah, yeah. Uh, you know sort of Rubik's cube of, of, of things that just doesn't make sense like it's they it probably make sense on some level that I'm not able to comprehend or I hope it does but I don't know how to get there and I, I think that's another Kind of perceptual hurdle or conceptual hurdle that has to be bridged in order to believe that our sense of a physical world isn't just enculturated. Does that make sense? I didn't mean to interrupt you. It got me thinking though about uh, your physicalness of the world. Yeah. No, I think it's a good. I think you said better what I was like going to continue on to like question about. Like, I, this, like, just reminds me of this. Uh, I took this philosophy seminar because of my undergrad. I was friends with a lot of philosophy major people. 
and they were like, you should come take this class with us. Heck yeah. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and so I asked if I could take the class because it was only for philosophy majors and they let me. And so I was the only neuroscience person in the room and we would talk about the seminar. It was like a round table about the philosophy of science. <laughs> and then I was like, they're trying to be a scientist and like learning about, you know, neurobiology and stuff. And so, you know, I very much have a materialist view, you know, as like most people do, that, oh, like, I don't know, there's neurons firing that underlies your behavior, there's something physical, and there's always going to be something physical that you can tie things down to, and I loved that. Like, that's why I liked neuroscience. It gave me this sense of control about emotions in the world and everything that was happening, and I just wanted to figure it out. And the more that I learned, the more that I learned that I will never figure it out. But, and when I took that class, I also was like, well, I don't even know what I'm doing here, to be honest, because it's just like a stack of cards <laughs> where, you know, like even materialism is a hypothesis and all my work is kind of built on All that science is contingent on that idea. Science is contingent on the notion that the physical world exists, but I think it's important to accept that it's an assumption that we share for cultural reasons that has not actually been proven it's impossible to prove with the current our current perceptual apparatus yeah. so it's that's a real issue to me that's a, a definitional issue underlying science i'm not saying science isn't the best method we have for repeating our perceptual experiences and convincing each other the world does work a certain way yeah. it's the best thing we got by far yeah. yeah there's nothing even remotely close to it but we still don't really get it <laughs> you know like that's also part of the story and I wish more scientists admitted that. I know with the culture being the way it is and all this hostility towards science is going on, that you know, you, you want to always show this like, you know, um, very confident bulwark of like, this is what we know and we're only going to expand that knowledge with time. But yeah. I, that's not real. And it's okay. It's okay. I it's think, still the best thing going. Is that is that yeah. because it's just easier to say this is how the system works with what we got? And we should just keep going with that rather than having conversations. It's okay as long as you make better predictions, right? As long as your brain is able, all of our collective brains are able to make better predictions about the world we live in because of shared observation and, and reproducible observation, which mm -hmm. is science, then you're doing the work. Like it's, if it makes, if you can get, if you can navigate the struggles of life better, then I say it's worth doing. Right. Now there's a lot of subjectivity in that. There is. And I, that's also a thing that always bothers me when we get into, like, philosophy of science is just admitting how human science has to be. It's humans who practice it. And there's egos and attitudes and, and assumptions and things that are blown off in the name of getting to the next step. And I, that's part of what makes it great. Yeah. <laughs> it is, I think. I think so. Like, I don't know, people are having conversations of, oh, AI is going to take over research. You're just going to put in this huge data that's already been collected and you'll say this is my hypothesis do the study for me and you know that's like i don't know i agree i think there's something very human about science and i only think, humans practice it exactly well actually i don't know about that if Chat science is PT. <laughs> if, if, if science is is uh you know making predictions about the world and and then modifying those predictions based on incoming information. And I guess like every you know organism with a brain on some level is doing science, whether they're calling it that or not. Every human is certainly a scientist, whether they want to call themselves that or not. Yeah. They are. 
uh, science as a philosophy or as a method has rules and principles, but like whether you think you're applying them or not, your brain is doing that all the time, right? right? So that's interesting. I think there's an interesting aspect to this free will conversation uh, that we haven't really touched on as much. Um, there's a little bit sprinkled in there, but um, this idea that there's so much that you're experiencing consciously, but maybe heaps more that you're experiencing unconsciously and interacting with unconsciously. Um, one very quick and brief example that I like to think of is like, if I'm walking out of a door that somebody held open for me, but didn't hold it all the way and let it go, I don't really actively think about catching the door, but if it's going to hit me, I do it regardless. Uh, and it's an interaction with the universe that I don't consciously think of. Um, I'm just on my way to get food, and that's what I'm worried about. So I think there's an aspect to this free will that... Oh, that's a great example. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, like, when it comes to just explaining how we just move our body without feeling like we made a decision to move our body, I mean, there's certainly, obviously, all the reflexes that are built into, you know, from an ancestral kind of standpoint into, the, into, our, into our central nervous system. Um, the question's always about, well, okay, how do you have internally generated movements and where does that come from? Where does an organism just choose to go left or right given a set of you know, parameters to make a decision? And I mean, a lot of the free will research has been leveraged against that. And that goes back to the volition part of the story, right? This notion of, you know, is there something about you, in quotation marks, that's choosing to do things, which you feel like you made a decision, like somehow in your mind's eye, you know, options were weighted, and you said, okay, well, I'm going to do that instead of this. And then, you know, in the case of just kicking the door open without thinking about it, it seems very automated, uh, and, and you don't feel like you made a decision to do it, but then the body did it anyway, and the cortex was heavily involved in generating that behavior, not your spinal cord. So... You know, it's not just a cortex or not kind of problem. Um, I think, you know, like, I'm just, from, just trying to think of the science, it's the, the experiments that have been done trying to look at this. I mean, you have a lot of work where people have looked at the supplementary motor area, and, and which is, of course, a major input to the basal ganglia, to then call up, you know, motor programs, which then get certain primary motor neurons firing and then certain lower motor neurons firing, you're moving your body, right? The question is, well, how does that get going and in, in experiment after experiment they can demonstrate that you know if, if we stimulate the supplementary motor area and just directly in a human brain we've done it at surgery side before people will have it a powerful like unstoppable feeling that they have to move their opposite limbs they will and if you do it strong enough the stimulus they will say that they did move their limbs even though they didn't like their experience of moving their body their agency about moving their body changes because that area of their brain's active. So, um, but it doesn't actually move the body, right? Mm -hmm. And why not? The supplementary motor area, if I stimulate it, isn't that going to call up basal ganglia circuits? That's what's bitching about it. The basal ganglia don't just get supplementary motor inputs, even though it's an important one. They get, you know, posterior parietal cortex inputs and lots of other prefrontal cortex. Your whole brain gets involved in telling medium spining neurons in the basal ganglia to do something. Mm -hmm. And if I just stimulate this one area, it ain't enough to get the command. It's a whole brain problem. But nevertheless, I mess with that area and the internal experience of what you want to do with your body changes, mm -hmm. right? I want to move. And like I said, 
feel like you did move even if you didn't. Now, if we stimulate M1, you will move, right? Because those are just upper motor neurons. They're going to make lower motor neurons move. Muscles are contracting, and that's happening. Mm -hmm. But you stimulate supplementary motor area, all of a sudden you get these weird deficits of agency. The, the fact that my body's not doing what I want it to do or, and so on. And that's, that's, that, that calls into question our sense of our ability to control our bodies. Another thing that does it for me, when I, I think about this a lot, because I rotate a bit with the psych residents and, and kind of studied how they see patients in those units. And I mean, does a, does a patient who has a substance use disorder have some sort of less uh, volition or not? Right. You know, like we often talk about these disorders as, you know, um, the inability to stop one's behavior, you know. So what are you saying? Are you saying they have less free will or less volition, whatever it is you're using to define that? Or do they have different volition? Or is it just different? Or is our experience of the choices they make different? In what way? And like, that's a complicated issue. And certainly the, we're changing the way we talk about that. The language on that's changing for a good reason. But it does ask important questions about free will, though. Right? You know, it's like, if, is, is that pathological state somehow alter your ability to have control of your body or not? Mm -hmm. What do you believe about that? You know, I mean, I, I, that's a major issue that confronts an awful lot of living human beings. And I don't believe they have any less volition than what I do, even though they might have difficulty preventing movement that they, you know, might be harmful to them. Uh, that's a, I don't know, it's a different, difficult issue to think about and solve. It's true. I don't know. Remember I wrote I wrote a final paper for a different philosophy class, the neuroscience of philosophy, on free will. <laughs> and I got into this like wormhole of cases where people have you know, tumors or lesions in their brain and then they do something terrible and then and like Dan, like even in neuropsych was talking about how he had to go to a like court case to um, talk about something related to this where you know like someone does something and then they're like oh well I have this tumor or like lesion in my brain in this area or like before we even knew that there was like mm, the University of Austin Texas or something and like a bell tower and someone they kept a journal and even their writing they were talking about how they felt they couldn't control like these thoughts and they were having these like violent thoughts and then they ended up like shooting their mom and then going to campus, going to this bell tower and like shooting a lot of people. And tr trigger warning for the listener. <laughs> um, but, you know, in this paper, like I got into all these case studies and I was like, well, like, do they have free will? Like, does this show that we don't have free will because if you lesion a part of the brain and then they do this and, you know, like they can't stop these thoughts and this happens, like, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> the shared cultural feeling that there is such a thing as free will, free will underwrites our legal system, right? If you mm -hmm. believe in a deterministic universe, then anybody who commits a crime could not possibly have done something different. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, that's a a real. I mean, so we we have agreed that no, no, we have the ability to choose. <laughs> that can't be true, otherwise our own legal principles break down pretty quickly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that's really interesting to think about. And there's, you know, there's bias in that as well. You know, even like affective bias in the legal system. Like how you're emo you can't control your emotions, you know, you're 
I don't think you can. I thought you said you could do that. I don't think you can. <laughs> yeah, hey, wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. But that's what I'm saying. Like, they, they, they study it in the, in the legal system. You know, we have these rules, regulations, and, you know, you hear a case and you try to make an assessment. It's democratic and whatnot. But, you know, the judge didn't have his lunch, and he's... He doesn't know why he's feeling yeah, a little bit. Yeah, even on the other side of the system, that matters, right? Oh, my um, goodness. And that's what got me. I'm like, man, that sucks. Ah. Hot take legal system. <laughs> but not <laughs> to throw it off, off the track. Here's I just, a spicy take, though. Is we do have some control over our emotional states, right? We can demonstrate how we can modulate that we, uh, with the, the whole, you know, sort of uh, all the different limbic interactions and what the insula is doing. So, you know, there is... That, that's where meditation and stuff does something. We can show what it's doing. And, you know, I, we're all at a place where Dr. Demacio once worked here. And, uh, you can look it up. He's been at a few places. And, uh, you know, it's like if you buy into the whole, you know, somatic marker notion, the sense that, you know, an emotion is something you feel bodily, then we, all we have to do is really look at the visceral motor system and how it's linked to the visceral sensory and external sensory systems and how we've paired those patterns to experiences to produce emotional states that are felt. And we really, at this point, really get that. Like it's, so Those are well-understood circuits. They're well-understood psychological phenomenon. Our feelings about how emotions are produced and modulated and regulated are vastly different than they were 20 years ago. And, and that's great. Uh, but you know, breathing exercises do change your internal state, which then reinforces a loop that produces potentially a different emotional response. So I don't. But did you decide to do that? That's the question. Yeah, because yeah. then it loses back. It's like, well, it you're breathing. Back. Yeah, so. you're. But but did you choose to in, initiate? Did you again? I'm always, every time for the listener, I say you. My, I put it in <laughs> <Yeah>. quotes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's little quote marks around the word you. Y O U. <laughs> Because I don't, you have to define that also in this conversation, and that's another ball of wax. But does the individual, in some quote-unquote free will way, choose to introduce a change in their breathing or whatever it is that's going to result in a different emotional state, or was that also just a learned behavior that, you know, allowed for homeostasis? So it's complicated. It is really complicated. I don't know. People always talk about top-down regulation. Sure. And, you know, I, I've i been getting really into Wim Hof. I don't know if you've heard of Wim Hof breathing. A little bit, yeah. Um, but he's like, I can stimulate, you know, brain stem centers and tap into dopamine and serotonin based on just breathing and this top-down regulation. Like, he'll go on these huge, long trips up these mountains in just his shorts. And they don't know how he does it. Two hours outside in, like, freezing temperatures. Oh, is this like that, the freezing yeah, the, shower thing that everyone's yeah, doing? Yeah, the like, Iceman. Yeah, it works. Like, there's reasons why that would work from a neurophysiological standpoint. And so that makes yeah. me believe, like, maybe we do have free will, quote-unquote, more than we think. Because I, you can, you know, change these centers that are autonomic. You're like, it's untouched. It's the, you know, primordial states. Like, you'll never be able to get into them. And then people are showing that you can, so... It's interesting. One of my favorite ideas that still kicks around now and then is the free won't is what we really have. Like there's, <laughs> free won't. <laughs> there's, uh, you know, you have all these operationalized networks that are producing likely behavioral outcomes, and and that's where all that like, the decisions are being made before you feel like you made them. But then there's still this, there's some evidence. There's the ability to abort those things to say, look, we're we're going down the path of doing this thing with our body, but we're not going to do it now. And you know, again, I don't know if that's free or not, but but 
you know, there's some there's some sense there too that it's the ability to shut down the motor outcome of that volition story, which then allows us to exert some kind of control over what our body's doing or not. This makes me think of gymnasts and when they're doing really like scary flips and all these things. And I forget the term, but there's a term that gymnasts use, and probably just athletes like in general, for when you just like there's some block and so you were able to do this thing and you knew exactly how to do it maybe you even talked about this in class but like you're able to do this thing and then all of a sudden you like can't do it like you can't do that move anymore even though like nothing's physically wrong with you and so there's just like a block that's wild so certainly the more we train ourselves to do complex motor behaviors, the more we can just let procedural memory programs run and we can do them. That's what a lot of sports are about ultimately. That's why we drill and practice and repeat and drill, whether it's football or golf, it doesn't matter what it is. Like You do the same thing over and over again so that you can get the brain to say, go ahead and do the behavior. And I'm not going to guide it with any sort of top-down extra control just do it because it's been trained and we've had all the reward reinforcement to know we've been training it well so as long as those conditions are all true you know you hopefully just let it run and that person can kind of dissociates the wrong word but sort of like remove themselves from the process of trying to do it and just letting their body quote unquote have that muscle memory to do it um and i mean that's all very true and 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 oftentimes too the, the danger element now adds threat assessment to the problem so if they're doing something that's really dangerous for themselves and they might have found a way to let those programs run and then for whatever reason the thought of their own mortality or risk creeps back into it and now all of a sudden the limbic system is messing with everything because that's all it knows how to do (laughs) god damn it (laughs) limbic fiend i also think like free won't is interesting and like because if like we didn't have free will what would that look like yeah. A lot of times, like I talk to people, like you know, on yeah. an airplane or something, and you somehow go down this rabbit hole, and they're like, and they, for that, for a lot of people I talk, not it's not scientists ever, but it's just like colloquially, people will say like, oh, free will means you know that someone else, some power entity is governing your behavior, and like I don't believe in that. Like I have no problem accepting that definition. I don't think that's happening either. So now what <laughs> you know like what do you mean and then they don't have anything else to say about it like well that's all i meant yeah <laughs> like well okay <laughs> you know it always comes back to volition for me because at least we could talk about brain centers that promote movement of the body under different circumstances and the different sort of parietal cortex and dorsolateral prefrontal cortex central executive network interactions that facilitate activation of those volitional networks you know, stuff goes into operationalizing those and training them to work also so you know this just rabbit hole doesn't end anywhere mm-hmm. but it goes back to something we said at the very beginning of this talk which was that I don't think you could re- re- reproduce the exact organization of a brain by just rolling it back and doing the exact same circumstances over again there's so many factors that I don't know how you model that you know we could talk about what parts of the brain do what things. We got these big you know, lesion registries and learn a tremendous amount about what happens when brains don't work the way that you know, they do when they're uh, not injured. That's been extraordinarily informative. But it's not like it tells the whole story ever. It just tells us how areas are important for certain tasks. And that's right. really important. But it always comes down to this whole brain problem for 
you know, where does the impulse or the sort of like process that leads down bringing in data from sensory systems and turning that into a choice happen? And the question I think fundamentally is, is there a choice that's being made that is something other than a neural network already evaluating the outcomes and leading us down some path? You know, like that's, that's where you get further away from the sense that you quote unquote did something. Um, I like to believe we have that choice, but I don't know how that works. I guess this brings up, so you you kind of brushed on this. You know the, I guess I've read the free will literature. I haven't. Myself. A little bit. I'm, I'm an amateur. And, but you're a scientist. I mean, we all are, I guess. <laughs> we define Every those. human is. So, <laughs> I, I, so how would you set up a free will experiment? How the hell would you yeah. even do? I don't need, I'm thinking, I'm like, I don't know what I would do. I don't know. Well, you, there's a lot of these that have been done. People, and again, I, I agree with what Avery said earlier about like, just like, are we? What are we even talking about with free will? Like, what do you mean? Yeah, because someone know? had to define it to do the experiment. But, no, but right? they usually get to volition. Oh. Okay. And so, like, if you're willing to make that jump, then we're we're good. We can talk about that. It doesn't mean we're still talking about the same thing, depending on who reads the data. But you know, like, but, we could talk about how motor commands are produced, and when a felt decision. A bodily felt decision where someone could say, I chose to do this with my body. How that differs from when neurons in the brain predicted that outcome at a high level without the person feeling like that happened. So that leaves that whole, is free will just an illusion? Like, I have this, I have a feeling that I have free will. I will absolutely walk out of this podcast and be like, I'm going to choose to go to my car and I'm going to choose to go home and, and so on. I mean, I'm going to make decisions. And maybe I'll abort those decisions halfway home and go somewhere else because I have free will. I just feel like that it's part of my enculturation about what I'm capable of doing with my life and my body. It's part of my felt experience of being in my body. But I can't tell you why any of that's true. And I, I, we just have to recognize that. But the experiments that have been done on volition, I, there's many. I can you know sort of send you links and stuff if you want. Yeah, but definitely. But you know, you go back to like. Libet, in, I think that's how you said the researcher's name, Libet, uh, in, I want to say, 83, looked at um, the, the feeling that a decision was being made before the decision was, was acted on and found that there was a big offset there. And although Libet's experiments have been criticized endlessly ever since, for good reasons, I mean, it's an early experiment. The findings have been reproduced a million times with better experiments. Right, <laughs> and, right. And, like so, like it, that's true. Like that seems to be the case where parts of our brain are are producing the outcome of the motor behavior before we feel like we've made a decision. So, like when we feel like we're making a decision, what's actually happening? Are we just, you know, this thing is being served up to us internally, and we're like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna go right. But actually, there's something you know going on back there that's inclining us to feel that way. I, that's the that's what people interpret from those experiments. Um, and then people have done a lot of work on um, on agency. We talked a bit about that. And you know, the feeling that we have made a decision with our body is not quite the same thing. Like volition is the, the, the will, if you will, will, to move the body in some way. But then agency is the ownership of having done that. Right? They're like related things, but one is like before and one's after the action. And you can get down that rabbit hole. We talked a little bit about like supplementary motor cortex and experiments that have been done there. So yeah, I mean, 
usually look at the latency between when a, 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 a decision is being recorded in networks that predicts an outcome and then someone being able to report to you that I have made a decision and those don't line up. It's incredible. It is incredible. That's probably why we still have these conversations as scientists because well, that should be together if we have this mysterious thing called free will. Or not. I mean, I, the same networks are presumably helping to configure my sense of identity and self and my experience of being alive in my body and all these things. And so what if there's weird latencies between how things work who gives a shit at the end of the day like I feel like I'm in my body I value the choices I make you know it's just that I can't get away from the notion that those values were enculturated that's the thing that always I always come back to but I have that anthropological kind of approach you know I was I, I, I trained in that because I was interested in it and I I still struggle with not struggle I, I just always go back to that where it's like yeah, but humans have been saying this story about our, how we live in our bodies since they were talking. And that informs how we think about what our minds and bodies were able to do. None of us can explain why the imagery of the world looks a certain way in our mind's eye or you know, the phenomenology and all that stuff. We don't get any of that. We know that neurons are somehow involved. We think they are because when you lesion them, they stop working. You know, like, okay, that makes sense. That has something to do with the internal experience of redness or whatever. Um, but we don't know how that manifests. And if we can't explain that, we're very far, very far from explaining how our, our like, individual sense of identity is constructed. And if we can't explain that, then, like, what do we even mean? Why are we even talking about for will? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. It's phenomenally interesting. But it's, it's kind of one of those, like cocktail party kind of problems because no one's going to be able to solve it you sure. know and that, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and that's what, there are experiments those experiments just constantly point at the offset between prediction by neuronal networks of behavior and a person believing they've made a decision that's the majority of the works in those areas I'm like I'm off in this corner thinking a little bit about traumatic experiences and when people have an out of body experience when something really bad is happening and I'm wondering how that relate or like fits into this conversation because it it definitely has an effect on people when something traumatic happens for like many reasons but you know like feeling like you don't have agency and if you're freezing because you're in the middle of a traumatic situation did you just lose free will that's what I'm wondering, I guess. It's intense. Um, I love that line of thinking. I mean, I don't like the experience of it, uh, but it's interesting. I, I, I didn't know much about neurobiology and trauma until last year, and I was asked to give a talk on it something, so I started to thread together that stuff, and, and now I have a talk on it, so I'm really into it. Um, but So from an evolutionary standpoint, we have all these reflexes built into us to get us to stop moving when we're in a seriously traumatically threatening situation right and not 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 stress but trauma which is like real danger in your face right why on earth you know this is a legal problem right you know people get you know uh, they're victims of sexual trauma or something like that and the cops are always asking victims why didn't you fight? Why didn't you try to get away? And it's like, I wasn't in control of my body. 
You know, what are you talking about? I don't even remember what this person looked like. Well, why don't you remember what they look like? You were there. Oh, hold on a second. That's not how any of this works, right? There's systems in place to uh, shut things down in those situations. Why would it benefit an organism, a vertebrate anyway, to stop moving in the case of extreme threat? Any sense of that? Protection. What kind? Why would it protect you? Because it enables you to keep reproducing. To by not moving? There's a predator or something trying to kill you. Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see. I was so why is that? Why is freezing adaptive? When I think about it, uh, predator, I kind of go back to that like bear thing where it's like play dead. Like if something thinks you're already dead, it's not going to attack you anymore. And so maybe freezing is sort of you're like you're right on the edge of what we think is going on. Okay. Right? All of the predatory uh, brain systems are visual driven. If you stop moving, you're giving the brain less information about where the target is. It's really that simple, right? So if, if we're visually oriented animals and all these different predators, different clades of vertebrates are seeking and hide, finding their prey visually, not all of them do, but many of them, the majority do. Um, then by not moving, you're increasing the likelihood that it will no longer notice you in the environment, right? So you can kind of explain that all day. But does the individual who's freezing under threat of trauma have less free will? That's the question that was asked. And it's like, that seems, a, that's a strange thing to me, but because we're just talking about systems that are designed to, to, you know, completely reprioritize the budgeting of neural resources to potentially get you to survive. And then it'll come back to a different, you know, level of activity after the threat is passed. So, I don't know. I mean. I, do we even accept the fact that we sometimes have free will and other times we don't? Is that a thing? I've never thought about that. <laughs> is, it, is it a hybrid model? What do you mean? As like <laughs> free will equals the ratio of how much will you have, how much volition over how much like is how just, much reflex you have yeah, saying reflex. you can't do that yeah. and it's like today i'm feeling 0.8 free will it sounds <laughs> like we're the yasin will quotient <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> fund me please <laughs> i don't know it's interesting i like I that get, there's no answer to these questions but they're really really interesting <laughs> to think about and and unfortunately they really they really make it difficult for victims of, of trauma to you know uh, get the justice they deserve and, and that kind of thing yeah. Think about like the the you know the uh, tunnel vision that occurs when people are threatened. You know, like people that, that are threatened physically, like let's say there's a, a gun in your face, they'll remember the gun, and then everything else will blur out. But that's literally just a reprioritization of neural resources. The brain saying, okay, the most important thing for the brain to concentrate on right now is the weapon. And all this other stuff, even though it's lights falling on the retina and the V1 was extracting that data and you could absolutely be seeing the periphery right then, the brain determined that it was more important to just really note the dangerous thing. And so it shuts down all that other stuff. That's, it makes sense that it would do that. But that's just, a, all you've done is change arousal signaling now. You know, you're just, you're just saying, hey, do more of this and less of that. Is there free will in that? I mean, you know, it's like, it's just a response to a threat. It's true. I don't know. I find that with like public speaking, it's like that. It's like you you prepare for everything and you know the material. Like you're very knowledgeable, 
and then there's like that, that crowd and the only thing you remember is like, hello, my name is XYZ. It's and very after much that, like this conversation because I have no idea what I'm saying. It's like, and then it's, <laughs> it's, None of us are free will researchers. <laughs> it's tunnel vision. It's like, I just need to like move and say stuff. And it's like, oh, I was supposed to talk about like why plants have feelings. I don't know anything about that, you know? And so, yeah, <laughs> man. That's when I'm like, I have no free will. I absolutely don't. <laughs> I think it must be like something to be a plant, but I can't prove it because I don't know what it's like to be anything other than myself. There's an interesting yeah. song by the band Marcy Playground uh, called The Plant Song. Yeah. Uh, you should give that a listen because they do an interesting job of explaining what it feels like to be a you plant. put it in the podcast. Yeah, we can drop it. Is this what it feels like? Is this what it feels like? This is what it feels like to be a plant. Oh, man. Well, we did end up talking about free will quite a lot. Going back sort of loosely on topic, it's not so much free will necessarily, but um, at Society for Neuroscience this last November, um, there was a poster that I ran across that was, uh, I think, in a kinesiology department. But looking at how uh, the phonemes of words, right, um, sort of produced an unconscious movement of the hands uh like production of like p's and k's i think it was uh in particular like would move thumbs and, and pinkies neat uh and i may be totally like misinterpreting what oh, i've yeah. seen on the poster but yeah um, super wild research to see why do you think that'd be true what was there what, what did they speculate was going on that's a I got a hypothesis. Question. But I, I don't know. I haven't seen the date. <laughs> I haven't seen their poster, but based on what you said, I mean, this is a problem that comes up a lot with strokes uh, interpretation because you got all these Broca's patients that have Broca's aphasias, and then they also also have problems with their hands because the motor cortex for hand is right next to this right. area, and it's like, you know, is that why they're also depressed? You know, because it's their dominant right. hand just got knocked out, and they're also having trouble talking, and so then that's just. Oh very limiting situation that could by itself lead to clinical depression we think so it's like disentangling how all this works who knows but if you're telling me that this is really interesting to think about if you're telling me or predicting that somehow um, language interpretation centers and or speech production centers have a premotor relationship with hand that's cool yeah they're right there <laughs> right it could it just simply be that they're so close to each other that neurons that are talking together, you know, you know, and engage in similar signaling are wiring together. I buy that because literally hands right next to M1 for speech. And if you're speeching, 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 and then you start to get a little bit of finger out of that, like that's my prediction. Yeah, interesting. I wonder like the people who talk with their hands, uh, also like um, how, how implicated this sort of aspect might be in that scenario. Also, when we think about like the motor cortex and like the individual sections for the fingers, uh, and how like if you were to bind two fingers together, it sort of bleeds the boundaries of those motor sure. areas. Uh, interesting to think that the hand being so close to the mouth uh, in scenarios of like talking with your hands, maybe there's sort of some bleed over with the neurons in there. I believe it. There's something to just also the, the human storyteller thing where, you know, it's, it's all a stage, you know, everything's a little theatrical to us, you know, and, and we do use our hands to demonstrate how we're using this amazing 
feature of our brain to control our hands. Like it's like we want to show that off. I think in, in some way that look, if you see what I'm trying to do with my hands, it's helping you understand what I'm saying because I'm also showing you with my hands what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't, I've just clapped my hands for like <laughs> bringing your points together. I don't know. It's totally non-conscious. Yeah. Right. But that's interesting. I haven't thought about that in a long time yeah, or ever really. Like we do this, like we always do hand gestures. It's interesting. I definitely move my hands a lot when I talk. Yeah. It makes me think a little bit about like flow state and how like when you really get into something and you're like in, like I'm already doing it with my hands or I'm like just moving them. <laughs> um, but I don't know, like I wonder, if, I don't know anything about like the neurobiology known about flow state, if that's even, I'm sure someone's researched that, but. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Like when you're really thinking deeply about something, you're just able to go with it. And that's when like, because for, for me, I guess, what made me think of this is that when I really get into talking about something, I will start to use my hands, but if I'm just kind of chatting, like it won't happen. And that's why I bring it up. Yeah. I'm, very, I'm very so like conscious of it all of a sudden. I'm putting my hands underneath <laughs> yeah. my legs. No, like, I'm don't move saying, your yeah. hands. Everyone's watching you use your hands. It's true. But I don't it's, know. It's what's going on. Maybe there is a connection between like freezing and flow states. And it's like the amount of hand movements. You know, because if you're like your whole body is coordinating, maybe you have more flow, more brain centers being recruited. Here's an idea, which is going to tie it back to the entire original conversation. Oh my yes. God, blow our minds. Bring us home. <laughs> what if a flow state is a, a reduced sort of free will state where you're just allowing your body to act according to procedures that you have defined and you know are successful in producing their state and having the body in, produce the outcomes that are you know, desired in that moment gets you in that quote-unquote zone and you're just feeling like, well, I'm not thinking about it, I'm just doing it. And does that mean we're more or less volitional? Oh my I God. vote more. Because my definition of you is like, you are your neurons, you're your responses. And so if you're just letting, if you're trying, well, I don't know, because if you're taking away like maybe the Is a plant an individual without neurons? Is this what it feels like? Is this what it feels like? Is this what it feels like to be a plant? <laughs> I want to go home. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Um, I don't know. I always go back to that. Like, I, I don't know why I feel like inanimate life form, whether well, they are animate, why non- uh, neurological life forms must have some experience of being something. I, I don't want to be reason this to believe that or not, but it, it seems right to me for whatever reason. Uh, but that always leads us back to this: Do you need a brain? Like, do you need a brain for this experience of reality or not? You know, neuroscientists and neurologists love to say so because we think there's nothing more organized than the human brain in all the universe. I read a paper just the other day though. I was like, well, actually. Um, like the mathematics that describe the organization of neurons in neural networks are really not any different than the mathematics that describe the organization of stars into galaxies. Like it's it's all the same kind of 
you put these things into relationship with each other and certain things will happen in either case. And it's like, that's kind of really interesting and comforting to think about. Yeah. You know? I think it is just like the most beautiful part of science. Like what makes me fall in love with science is the levels of it and how things connect. And like when you go from like a neuron to like all the way up to space and like even, you know, like it blows my mind every time. Well, see, and that's I, the awe, right? That's the, that's the reason I think most of us got into science is that if we feel like we're touching the fire a little bit. You know, it's like, I, I, I know something about this world, or I'm almost at the point of knowing something about this world that just makes it that much cooler. Yeah. And that's, there's no feeling in the world like that. But is that really a feeling? No. I'm kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> I know I like it. <laughs> I think that might be a good place to wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. It's been a, a privilege to get to talk to you guys tonight. Oh my gosh, I feel like the privilege is ours. Yes, we are more than honored. So fantastic to talk to you about this stuff and pick your brain about well, a million Pick different... your brains. I'm going to leave here with lots of questions, <laughs> way more than, than answers. More and, confused? <laughs> well, I always say that if you don't end the day more confused than you started it, you did it wrong. You didn't like that triple berry breezer? <laughs>